If you're a fan of the Mission Impossible movies, you'll know that they are full of events that are sort of bare-knuckle, wild rides, near-death experiences. Tom Cruise spends most of his time in all the movies just about to die. Uh, here is a picture of him doing one of those events. He actually does most of his own stunts, apparently. Here he is on the biggest, on, sorry, on the tallest building in the world, and he spends a fair amount of time on the outside of it, climbing with su suction caps attached to his gloves to hang on to the wall of the building. At one point, one of them runs out of batteries. You'll be glad to know, and I'm going to give you a spoiler for the movie, you'll be glad to know he lives. He lands inside the building and he lives. If you're the sort of person that really, really gets into movies, then you will be very tense as you watch these kind of events. And the more tense you are, the more relieved you are when you see someone like Tom Cruise safe and sound, having got through a near-death experience. In the book of Esther, most of the book is a near-death experience for the people of God. And so there is enormous sense of relief when they are saved from what looks like certain death throughout the story. Now, that's where we're headed in the book of Esther, so if you've got it open in front of you, that'll be helpful. It's just worth noting that for all of us, the more terrified we are, the more scared we are in any given situation, then the more relieved we are when we're saved from that situation. So as the story unfolds through chapter 8, 9 and 10, it feels a little bit like these are the credits at the end of the movie. Like the main drama of the story has been resolved. Mordecai and Esther are involved in the main drama. Mordecai has his life under threat and he's saved. And Esther has put her life at risk as she's presented herself before the king and she's saved. So everything that happens in chapter 8, 9 and 10 are like the credits rolling. We know the story's been resolved. But everything that happens from here on in is the application of the saving work to Mordecai and Esther being drawn out to the rest of the people of God in these chapters. Mordecai's life's been saved, Esther's life's been saved, Haman, the enemy of God's people, has been killed. So the main threat has been dealt with and yet it takes a while for these events to unfold. So Esther once again has stepped into the presence of the king and risked her life like she did before but now to ask the king to write another edict, another order to override the previous order the order to have the Jews killed, destroyed, annihilated. And the king agrees The king agrees that another order can be made and he actually gives his signet ring, which is a sign of his power and authority, is given to Mordecai in order that Mordecai would have all the power and authority of the kingdom and Mordecai makes an edict. And his edict is the exact reverse of what was made back in chapter 3. So the law was that the enemy of the Jews, whoever wanted to, could kill, destroy and annihilate all of God's people on a given day. Now Mordecai makes the reverse edict. Same day, the Jews can defend themselves, kill, destroy and annihilate anyone who is one of their enemies. And what unfolds in these chapters is an enormous amount of death. There is destruction on a broad scale all across the world. 75,000 people are put to the sword. 75,000 enemies of the Jews are killed. And alongside of that, in the capital, in Susa, 500 people, 500 enemy of the, enemies of the Jews are killed. And that doesn't actually finish the job. Esther asks the king, please, sir, can we have just one more day 
so that we can kill some more, and 300 enemies are killed on the <clears throat> excuse me on the very next day. The one thing you note as you read through these chapters is it is brutal, and there is a lot of killing that occurs. And for us, I think our natural reaction is to be quite dismayed, perhaps even appalled at all of this death that occurs. So let's just try and unpack it and understand what's happening first and then why we might be people who are appalled at what happens in these chapters. Let me first start with chapter 8, verse 11 and see the context. What is actually happening? And we see that the Jews are actually defending themselves. So chapter 8, verse 11 says, The king's edicts granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves to destroy, kill and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them. See, the context, context is they are in defence of their very own lives against a group of people who absolutely hate them and want to see them killed. So can I ask you, have you ever lived with a death threat? Have you ever had someone who is in a position to take your life threaten to take your life? Because if you have, then you would know the relief it would be to have that person taken out of the picture so that that threat had disappeared and you could live in peace entirely. Can I ask you what it would be like if you knew when you left the hall here tonight there was 800 people in Orange who were committed to killing you if they had the opportunity simply because you're a follower of Jesus? I don't think we can understand what it would be like to live under those circumstances. But if you did know what it was like, then you would know the relief that would come if those people were killed and you could live at peace as a result of that. Now, as we sit at this and we think how terrible it is that all these thousands upon thousands of people have been killed, it's worth understanding what we're doing as we do that. Because really what we're seeing here is the judgment of God unfold on the enemies of God. And so as we stand here and say this is appalling, if that's where we're at, then we ought to recognise that we're saying to the God of heaven and earth, you don't know how to do justice. We're saying to the God of this universe, there is something wrong with the way that you deliver justice in the world. And so if we do that, we ought to recognise just how arrogant we're being to call to account the God who is perfect, righteous and just in everything he does for us to think that we ought to be able to stand in judgement over him is absurd. And alongside of that, remember that the way we do justice is deeply flawed. At least the way I do justice is and I reckon the way you do it is flawed as well. When I do justice... I look at people who've, who've wronged me in very minor ways and I want to throw the book at them. Someone who's cut me off at a roundabout, they definitely should get a, a ticket. The police should be right there in order to give them an infringement notice. And yet when I do exactly the same thing, there are really good reasons why I've done that. And I ought to be shown mercy. See, we ought not to trust ourselves to do justice because our bias is so great, we mess it up. And I think you see that in our legal system. Our legal system doesn't do a great job often because our biases lean in one direction or another and we're not good at delivering justice. 
So as we sit and look at this, recognise that our God is a perfect God who knows everything about his world, even the thoughts of the hearts of people, and is perfectly positioned to judge rightly. The other thing to note really is just how strong the opposition is to God's people. Did you notice that? Like there are 75,000 people with an edict to say the Jews are able to defend themselves with lethal force. There are still 75,000 people across the world, the known world at that time, who are willing to stand up and have a go at the Jews on the day that they can. There is very strong opposition to the people of God. There always, there was two and a half thousand years ago. There is now. There always has been. There always will be people who are passionately opposed to God's people because they're passionately opposed to God as well. That was the case then. It's still the case now. And so as we look at this, remember that Esther is a small story amongst the saving and the judging work of God in the big story of the Bible. So what we're looking at is the potted version of the expanded version of everything God is doing and has done in his world. Not sure if you're aware of babushka dolls. Babushka dolls are Russian nana dolls. They're the wooden dolls that you see that get packaged up uh, inside each other. So you often see them, they get unpacked, and there's a whole series of them. They can get packaged up again, and they're painted so that everyone can see those different dolls one after the other. They're all different sizes. They're similar but not quite the same. Well, Esther is like the little babushka doll that sits inside the bigger babushka doll of the entire Bible. It's this little story of God's saving work and God's judging work amongst God's big story of God's saving work and God's judging work. And in Esther, it's the people of God who are destroying, killing, annihilating their enemies But in the big picture story of the Bible, the judging work of God, the destroying, killing and annihilating, is God's work on a final day of judgment. And the Bible is really clear on this. There will come a day when God will separate the sheep and the goats. The people who have their trust in Jesus will be amongst the sheep and they will go off to eternal blessings. The people who refuse to put their trust in Jesus, who've turned away from God, who are enemies of God, will be the goats. And they will go off to eternal curses. And that's the reality in Esther, but it's the reality in all the scriptures. It's the reality of what Jesus said. Matthew 25, verse 41, Jesus said this. He said, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire. It's the end result. In the big picture of the Bible, there will come a day when judgment will fall on people who haven't turned to Jesus in trust. So tonight, let Esther be a reminder of the truth that God will one day judge every human being for every thought and deed. The Bible talks about it regularly and clearly. And we can ignore it, but it won't change the truth of it. And Jesus speaks about it regularly and clearly. He gives grave warnings. So, friends, heed the warnings. If you're here today because you're checking out Jesus, fantastic. We love the fact that you're here. But hear his warning. There will come a day when God will judge the thoughts, words and deeds of every human being. There's one safe place to be. That's putting your trust in him.
So if you don't like the death that you see in Esther, let it be a reminder to you that something worse is coming in the final judgment. Now, I think for all of us, there's part of us that lives as if God will never judge. We live so flippantly about this and we're so unconcerned about our lost friends and neighbours that we are not desperate to tell them this good news of the gospel. We let opportunity after opportunity go by because we're not thoroughly convinced that what Jesus said was true. And so our heart does not break when we see our friends and neighbours under an eternal judgement of the right and just God of the universe. But if we recognise that judgement is true and we believe Jesus' words, how we lived, how I lived, might well be very different. I'd be more committed in prayer. I would be more active in seeking out the lost to love them and present the only hope they've got in the person of Jesus. As the story unfolds, I hope you've noticed that there is a beautiful, a wonderful shift for God's people in this story. Let me take your mind back to chapter 3, Esther chapter 3. The people of God were under an edict of death and destruction and they were all in sackcloth and ashes, in mourning and fasting, absolutely devastated because they were under threat of death. They knew the day was coming when they would be put to the sword. And now, at the end of the story, everything bad has turned good. And all of their mourning has turned now to joy and gladness. Have a look with me at Esther 8. I'm going to pick it up in verse 15. Here's the situation they're in now. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honour. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. We're at two polar ends of the spectrum here. We're at the absolute opposites. It was devastation, mourning, sadness. Now it is joy and feasting and celebration. There is a massive turnaround in the book of Esther. All of the curses the people of God were under at the start are now turned into blessings because God is delivering on his promises to his people. And it's a wonderful story. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. And the people are to remember this story. That's the reason for the whole book of Esther being written is so that people would know why they celebrate the festival, the feast of Purim. Why is it that they've got this marker in the calendar to celebrate this event? They're to remember why they celebrate. They're to remember something specifically. Let me take you to Esther 9. I'm going to pick it up from verse 24. This is what they've got to remember. This is what they need to remind each other of. Chapter 9, verse 24. For Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the purr, that is the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head and that he and his sons should be impaled on poles. See what they're to remember? They were under threat of death. The day was coming when they would be destroyed. But now, remarkably, they live. 
Their enemies have been destroyed and now they have life. They did have death, now they have life. They did have curses, now they have blessings. And they're to remind each other of that year after year so they remember this mighty saving work year after year. I just want to draw your attention to one verse that pops up that we read at the start of chapter 10, which seems a little strange in the context of all this celebration and all this reminder of the wonderful work of what has essentially been God's work to save his people. One verse stands out as a little bit of a red herring in here. Let me read it for you. Chapter 10, verse 1. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores. Just plopped in there amongst the story. Just to remind everyone, there is a king from a foreign nation taxing the whole world. What on earth does that do for us? It just tells us that not all of God's promises have been fulfilled just yet. This is not the promised land. This is not God's people with God as their king enjoying all of God's blessing. They're under a foreign ruler and that foreign ruler is taxing them and the whole world around them. And so the book of Esther tells us that we ought to celebrate this wonderful saving work of God but know that this is not the end. This is the little doll that points us forward to the big babushka doll that shows us the greater saving work of God that will come later because not all of God's promises are fulfilled in the book of Esther. And so as we think about what Esther means for us, we need to understand that it actually speaks very directly to us and the New Testament shows us it speaks exactly the same word to us as it did to the people of God back then. That they ought to have been reminded that they were dead and now they've been brought to life. You and I ought to remember the same thing. We were dead and we've been brought to life. Have a look with me at Ephesians 2. The Apostle Paul writes, Ephesians 2 verse 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Friends, that's the same word that God gave to his people at the time of Esther and Mordecai. They were dead under an edict of destruction, but God mercifully brought life. That's us. That's you tonight. If you're a believer in Jesus right here, you were dead in your sins, but God in his mercy through Christ has made you alive and given you a hope and a future and blessings. And that is me with my trust in Jesus. And I ought to remember that day in and day out. Friends, Friday's coming. I've said this throughout the day, but I think probably to you guys it needs to be said really clearly. Friday is coming. It's Christmas Day. Do your shopping now so that your mum and dad and anyone else who you're buying presents for, you're all sorted. You've got four days to go. Take it as a warning. Friday's coming. We give gifts to one another on Friday, don't we? We celebrate. We feast. We drink. We remember. What do we remember? Do we remember a baby from 2,000 years ago? Well, yes, but there's a lot more than that. We remember that baby was sent in order for God to show mercy. We remember that God sent word dead in our sins because we were under his judgment. 
But now, because of his great saving work in Jesus, we can have life. When God sent Jesus to be our representative, he was sending someone like Mordecai and Esther, someone who would speak up for the good of his people so that the curse of sin and death would be reversed for anyone who has their trust in Jesus. And instead of death, God would bring life. Instead of cursing, God would bring blessing. And like Mordecai, our saviour Jesus is clothed in the king's robes, given glory and honour and all power and authority, and he is rightly feared by his people and held in high esteem. And this greater story, like the story of Esther, this greater story about the Lord Jesus ought to be remembered So tell one another, tell your family, tell your friends about this celebration of the mighty saving work of God in Christ so that on Friday we ought to celebrate what has been done for us to bring us from death to life in a greater saviour than Mordecai, deserving of greater honour and deserving of a far better celebration. Praise God for that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a God of great mercy, that you came to save, that when we were under threat of death for our sins, you came to bring mercy. And so we give you praise and honour for that mighty saving work and work in us so that we would live for your glory. Amen.